Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 9. If you have your Bible with you, would you turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 9? Excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, and we're reading from verse 9 to verse 13. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. We're continuing this morning in our series entitled, What Do You Believe? Faith and Culture. And our focus this morning is a little different from the last few weeks as we come to look at this final petition in the Lord's Prayer. You'll find it on page, let me have a look here, 1504-1504 in the Pew Bible. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His holy word. Over the last few weeks, we have been exploring and navigating our way around some of the cultural landmines and hot topics of our day. And we have touched on issues of human sexuality, abortion, sexual identity, and marriage. And this morning, we are moving away ever so slightly because of the events in Israel this last 10 days or so. And I am going to focus on that in the final section of our study this morning. And the reason I'm doing that is this, that as Christian people, we ask ourselves and have been rightly asking ourselves over these Sundays together, how do we live out our faith week by week by week in a credible, authentic manner? because we're convinced it's not enough to turn up to church on Sunday morning, smile and nod and agree with everything that's being said, and then live any old way we like during the week. We believe that living out our faith in a credible, authentic manner is important. In other words, and how often have we said this on a Sunday morning, our walk must equal our talk. And this past Wednesday, I taught two Bible studies, one on Wednesday lunchtime and one Wednesday evening, and as most of you know, there are multiple events happening at First Pres in the course of the week. We have something like 33 basketball teams, we have endless musical events happening, we have events for our wee ones, our children, our youth, we have art uh, events, we, it just goes on and on and on, and it's a wonderfully busy place to be part of. And last Wednesday when I was teaching, I was very conscious of all that happened in Israel, and we had been immersing ourselves in the Lord's Prayer, and we came to this final petition. And so, I was so impacted by it, I wanted to teach it again this morning. I almost never do that, but last Wednesday it did impact me, and I trust it will have an impact on you this morning as well. And the question is this, when Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, He begins, Our Father who art in heaven. And my question is this, why did the disciples ask Him, teach us how to pray? 
Now, think of all the things that they could have asked Jesus. Put yourself in that situation. What would you have asked him? I sometimes think if I had been right there that day, I might have said, Lord, teach me how to walk on water. I think that would be pretty cool. Or how to change water into wine, or make the deaf to hear, or the dumb to speak, or the blind to see. Of all the things they could have asked for, they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And I have been fascinated by that question, and the only response I can come up with is this, that they saw in his life a quality in his relationship with his Father that they saw reflected in his prayers that quietly inside they said, I want to be like that. They had watched him teach. They had watched the gospel impact hundreds and thousands of people. They had been impacted by its power themselves. They understood what it was to have a new heart, a new mind, a new soul drawn into a relationship with their heavenly Father. They knew all of that, and yet they asked, teach us how to pray. Heartfelt, genuine, authentic prayer is not easy and I think most of us, whether we've walk, been walking the Christian road for the last 18 months or for 45 years, most of us would say, actually, oh, my prayer life is probably not what it needs to be. And so he begins our Father. He doesn't begin our Creator, which is entirely true, and he could have begun that way. He doesn't say our Redeemer, our Savior. He says our Father. And how many times on a Sunday morning have we said that prayer is a little like approaching God and slipping up and sitting on the lap of God, pouring out your heart and mind and soul, every challenge, every distraction, every area that's causing you questions, your future, your identity, issues at work, tension in marriage, and just resting there as God puts His arm around and listens and encourages you and interacts with you. That's what's happening when we pray our Father. And there are several petitions being made throughout the prayer. And the final three, I'm not going to touch on all three of them this morning, but it gives you a little contextual backdrop. In the first of, excuse me, the I think there's three final uh, petitions, and the first one is provision. Give us today our daily bread. This isn't any kind of strange prayer that doesn't really impact us. It's very practical in every sense. Give us today our daily bread. The second petition is for pardon, forgive us our debts. And it's the third petition we're coming to when he prays for, he teaches them to pray for protection and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And that's where our focus will be this morning. Lead us not into temptation. What do we believe about temptation? Why is it important? Why is it so important? We're spending an entire morning on it. Well, it's important for this reason. 
but fairly regularly, someone will ask me the question, Richard, help me understand what sin and temptation is, because on Sunday mornings, I'm pretty certain I hear you talk about having a relationship with God the Father. I hear you talking and describing what it means when He grants to us His Holy Spirit at the point of our conversion to come and live within us and to strengthen us and equip us and enable us. And I hear all of that, and I hear you teach that He forgives us and extends mercy to us and grace to us, and that He walks alongside us day by day, moment by moment, that He leads and guides and directs us. I hear you saying all of that, but Richard, how on earth is it possible for me to have the Holy Spirit living within me, be strengthened by Him every day, to walk close to Him every day, and still give in to sin and temptation? How is that possible? Help me understand that. Well, usually when I'm asked that question, I respond in the same way as any other question, and it's this. What does the Scriptures teach about sin and temptation? And if we can stand back for a moment and do the 37,000 feet overview of sin and temptation, what the Scripture teaches is this, and it's fairly straightforward. Before taking your faith seriously, before coming to a relationship with Christ, we kind of just did normal everyday things. Sin wasn't really a big issue. Of course, we would never be involved in murder or genocide or anything of that nature. We just lived normal everyday kind of lives. But when Christ comes into our lives, suddenly prayer becomes a priority. Worship becomes important holiness and purity matter to us. And then suddenly we're saying, we want to live the best Christian life we possibly can in every aspect of our lives. And then we really begin to understand sin and temptation, because we realize the person we used to be is not the person we are now. And we want to live with credibility and accountability and transparency that doesn't mean we always get it right. We don't. We know that. We're far from perfect people, but we're not who we were. We're not who we will be, but we are seeking to grow and develop and mature in our faith. And what has happened to us is this. Scripture tells us that we have been brought out of the rule of Satan, but not out of his reach. Let me say that again because I don't want you to miss it. We have been brought out of the rule of Satan, but not out of his reach. In other words, he will begin to whisper in your ear and tempt you and say, really, that's how you're going to live? Come on. Come on. That's only for those narrow-minded Christian people who believe in all that kind of ancient primitive stuff. What you're doing is no big deal. Everyone does it. Relax. It's not that bad. You can handle it. And that's what it means when you're not out of His reach, because He'll continue to pull you back. And let me give you two principles to live by. If you are taking notes this morning or watching on our live stream, I think this is worth getting down. 
we consistently underestimate the power, significance, and magnitude of our own sin. And the power, significance, and magnitude of the grace of God. Now, let me deal with them one at a time. Whenever you come across sin, and whenever sin comes to tempt you and draw you in, it is enticing and appealing. The alcoholic, the drug addict, never imagines what sobriety looks like, never sees the outcome of a drug addiction. All they focus on is the high and how it will make them feel, and it's enticing and it's appealing. It is seductive and it's deceptive. Again, I'm in danger of repeating myself here because sin tells us it is no big deal. You can handle it. Thirdly, it has a tranquilizing, addictive, enslaving effect on the heart and mind and soul. This past Wednesday, I used a simple illustration, and I've used it in the past, so please forgive me if this is a little redundant, but that, those principles of sin being enticing, appealing, seductive, deceptive, tranquilizing, addictive, and enslaving, and we see it in something that we think is almost innocuous. The example I have in mind is gossip. We're surrounded by four or five people, and when we begin to tell them about someone else, suddenly there's a quietness. Suddenly everyone's leaning in and paying attention, and you're the center of attention, and they're stroking your ego, and they're saying to you, wow, I never knew that. How do you know that? I had no idea that was happening. I couldn't imagine Thomas doing that. And so it continues, and suddenly you are large and in charge, and everyone's paying attention, and now you're beginning to rise six feet above contradiction. And you are building yourself up while tearing someone else down. That's what happens because sin is enticing and it's appealing and it's seductive and it's deceptive and it is tranquilizing and addictive and enslaving. Sin, we tend to think, is something we do, and it certainly is. It's an act of commission, but it also impacts us. It tranquilizes the mind and it shrivels and reduces the process of thinking and empathizing and sympathizing with the person you're tearing down. And it moves from simple things like thinking and gossip to much more serious sins. And we see it in adultery, and we see it in incest. And sin begets sin, and gossip begets gossip, and racism begets racism, and arrogance begets arrogance. And so it goes on and on and on and on, and we consistently underestimate its power, significance, and the magnitude of what is taking place. 
Let me give you another example. And I've used this example before, so please forgive me, but it's certainly appropriate to today. Back in June 2015, a young man in his early 20s called Dylan Roof sat in Mother Emmanuel Church on a Wednesday night in Charleston. He sat there for an hour and ten minutes, and after the Bible study and prayer meeting, he withdrew a handgun and shot nine people. Three days later in court, the families had the opportunity to speak to him, and family after family, it was reported in the newspapers at the time, word for word, extended forgiveness to him. A couple of weeks later, this is what he wrote. He wrote, I would like to make it crystal clear. I do not regret what I did. I am not sorry. I have not shed a tear for the innocent people I killed. He later continued, I have shed a tear of self-pity for myself. I feel pity that I had to do what I did in the first place. He was so seduced by sin, he believed he was setting off a second civil war, a race war. That's how powerful, significant sin actually is. It causes us to commit moral suicide. Sin is the suicidal action of the will against itself. Its power destroys your ability to live in freedom, and it is addictive and enslaving. And that's why Jesus said, I have come to give you the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That's at the heart of the gospel. Now, you may be sitting there saying, okay, Richard, I hear what you're saying, but, Richard, I hope you're not going to stop there, because all you have done is highlighted the power, significance, and magnitude of sin. You've talked about its seductive power. You've talked about how it impacts our moral values, our spiritual standards, how it impacts us heart and mind and soul. It is seductive and enslaving. Is that it? Is that where you're going to stop this morning? Well, in fact, I want to do the opposite having described what it is, because we should never underestimate it, let's also remember not to underestimate the power, significance, and magnitude of the grace of Almighty God. The Apostle Paul, in writing about sin and temptation, says this, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man, and God is faithful please note that. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you will stand up under it. Now, in challenging you this morning, allow me to challenge myself and confess a little this morning that I am absolutely, wholeheartedly so grateful for what Paul has written there. Because there are times when I am being seduced by sin and drawn in by its power, and it's appealing to my emotions and all my senses, I need to remember 
and God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Here is my problem. Sin is so powerful. The last line, He will also provide a way out for you. I don't want a way out when I'm in the middle of a sin. I want to continue with it. I want to fulfill that desire. I want to 